0: something inspiring when you listen to the garden question podcast. Hello I'm your host Craig McManus. Paul Chapel grows trees headed to a landscape garden near you. He talks about the fascinating journey your trees might take before finding a home in your garden. Once your tree finds its home Paul lays out what it takes for you to be a successful tree grower for multiple generations. Paul fell in love with plants and their care over 36 years ago. He tells some very interesting stories about his time at Callaway Gardens, the challenges of growing native trees in the nursery, and also some plant design practices and choices you will want to avoid. Paul is a Georgia-certified landscape professional an ISA certified arborist and a 20 plus year nursery grower of fine trees. This is episode 15, where trees come from, of the Garden Question podcast. Our conversation with Paul Chapel of Diversified Trees coming up. You're invited to ask your garden design, build, or grow question at thegardenquestion.com. Not only do you get a chance to ask your own question, but you might inspire the next episode of the Garden Question Podcast. So go to thegardenquestion.com and ask your question. Paul, what is a smarter way to select a tree for your property? I'm sure you've heard a lot of people talk about
1: right plant, right place. That's very basic. People usually either want a tree for shade or they want a tree for some accent, either fall color or spring color. A lot of times people just choose a tree they like rather than thinking about the mature sizes. People try to plant trees in spaces that are too small. They plant crepe myrtles in places that are in heavy shade. If you could just research a little little bit more ask your local nurseryman make a visit to the local retail garden center i think just thinking through it and making sure you've got head clearance you have got power lines across your property or where you have sun where you have shade where you have room for something to grow into that space a tree looks really nice and cute when it's small you got to think 20 25 30 years down the road or how it's going to occupy that space then
0: You're a grower of fine trees and plants. How does that process work? The nursery business
1: has gotten really, really specialized, especially in the last 20 years. There was a time, I don't know, 40s, 50s, and 60s, the nurseries in Georgia, there weren't that many of them. Those nurseries did it all. They did everything from propagation, cuttings, rooting, seedlings, budding, grafting. They had greenhouse operations. They had field operations, one-stop place for everything. They might grow flowers. They might grow woody shrubs, they might grow trees, they might grow vines, they might grow vegetables, they might grow perennials, they might grow grasses. Years ago, a nursery just kind of tried to do it all. Our approach has been very focused in that we are doing container only and we're doing woody plants only. And we're doing only plants that lend themselves to the market in a larger container. So the smallest thing that we do is a 15-gallon. That's a container in which we would grow, for instance, a holly up to about five to six feet, or we would grow a shade tree, oak or maple, either one, up to an inch and a half caliper and as much as 10 to maybe 12 foot planted height. And we don't do any propagation. Over the years, I've collected seed on a few things and we have done a little bit, but we just, we're just we not set up for it. It's a whole nother piece of infrastructure that you've got to build. It's a whole nother skill set that you've got to have in your labor force. There are nurseries now who do nothing but propagating liners and selling them to other growers like myself who are shifting them up to larger containers or field grown nurseries who are planting them into the ground and then finishing them off. So I guess you would call us a finished nursery. You might have to be a plant nerd to appreciate this. I think about how far plant travels before it finds final resting place in the landscape. Several years ago, a long time ago, really, we did a a project for the Biltmore State in Asheville, North Carolina. And we committed to contract growing the replacement trees for the front of the Biltmore State. They decided to do a historical landscape renovation. These hundred-year-old tulip poplars that Frederick Law Olmsted designed and planted as young whips in 1895 had come of age, and some were falling apart, many were missing, and they just decided to wipe them out and start them over. Because of our connections, that's a Callaway connection, actually, because Parker Andes, who was the director of horticulture at Callaway when I was there, when he left Callaway in 99, I think it was, he left to go become director of horticulture at Biltmore State. So we knew each other. He actually called us to see if we knew somebody who would be willing to contract grow these trees, and we said, how about us? He said, well, I hadn't thought about doing them in a container, because he was thinking field growth. Anyway, we grew these trees, but a real point to this story is that by the time we delivered four-inch caliper, 100-gallon tulip poplars, 22 feet tall, we delivered 60 out to the Biltmore State. When you think about the history of that tree, it was collected from seed in Louisiana, and I know this because I did a little bit of research on them. A nursery in Lee, Florida bought those seeds, grew seedlings at their farm, just 12 14-inch seedlings. A nursery in Cairo, Georgia bought those seedlings and grew them into five-gallon containers up to six to eight feet tall. A nursery in Luthersville, Georgia bought those, grew them in 30-gallon containers up to two-inch caliper and 12 to 14 feet tall. We bought those 30-gallon trees, brought them to our farm, shifted them into 100-gallon containers, grew them up to four-inch, 22 feet tall, and then we put them on semi-trucks and shipped them to Asheville, North Carolina of where their crew and staff put them in the gardens. I just find that entirely hilarious to me to think about the journey of a tree where it started and where it ends up.
0: You've mentioned a couple of things that we may not all be familiar with when you say propagation, budding and grafting. Propagation is kind of the umbrella word for taking a plant and reproducing
1: more plants from it. That can either be the collecting of seed that you put in the ground or that you put in a controlled environment in a greenhouse and let them spread Out propagation can also mean taking cuttings, which you also stick with a rooting hormone and stick into a controlled environment, maybe heated beds and controlled greenhouse space for them to take root. Those seedlings or those cuttings get shifted up to larger containers. Propagation is the umbrella word for making more plants, and then then there's a number of different ways to do that. The budding and grafting is a very specialized type of propagation, wherein there may be a rootstock, meaning there's a particular plant way out of my field here but let's say with those ornamental crab apples there is a basic crab apple rootstock that may be advantageous to take on that rootstock and graft particular variety of crab apple not really grow it on its own rootstock it'll actually do better and perform better if it's grown on a more select rootstock a lot of times you'll see particularly fruit trees and some of the ornamental crabs and cherries and everything, you'll see a graft at the bottom where it, if you buy one at the store or at the nursery, there'll be a little sharp little dog leg at the bottom where it was grafted at one time on a different root stock. Man, budding can be all kinds of crazy things. If you go to, a, to some of these specialty nurseries, particularly mail order nurseries that offer these really odd fruit trees that might have peach and nectarine and everything all on the same tree, well, they budded all these different varieties
0: on the one stem to grow this odd tree. What's the most unique plant or weirdest plant that you've grown in your nursery? Yeah, I don't know that there's anything particularly weird.
1: And unique may mean things that uh, aren't necessarily broadly grown. You can find an oak or a maple or a crepe myrtle or a magnolia just about anywhere. Any nursery that's growing landscape ornamental material is going to have the basic bread and butter plants. We do try to do some things that are a little bit unusual, a little bit hard One of the primary ones that comes to my mind that we grow is a Chinese evergreen dogwood and it's a selection that's been named Bernice. Gary Agin used to be the grower at Lone Oak Tree Farm years ago. They were growing seedling Chinese evergreen dogwoods. He selected one in particular that had good form, a good presence, it had good flower. He started propagating it uh, vegetatively, taking cuttings and propagating it and he named it Bernice after his grandmother. When Gary... Left Lonook years ago. Took me a long time to track him down. I wrote him a letter and got his permission propagate Bernice got in an agreement with Byron Lakeview Nursery over in Byron, Georgia, uh, Jonathan and Bambi James, and, and they actually had some parent plants. So they've been taking cuttings from me for years and uh, getting those rooted, and I get them as one-gallon plants, which is something I normally don't do. We'll take those ones and put them in sevens, stake them and prune them and train them, and then shift them to 15s a year later, and then a year later after that, then we have that plant available. Chinese evergreen dogwood, there is another cultivar out there called Empress of China. It's more well known in the trade. Don't know that there's any real distinct difference between the two trees. I don't know if anybody else is growing that one, the Bernice, and it's a favorite with a lot of my customers. And so we'll continue to grow that one for a long
0: time. That is a fantastic tree. I probably bought some of the last ones, sold at long Oak before they shut the doors. I've got one right now blooming in my yard. That's a fantastic tree.
1: It's the great thing about it is it probably by now, and of course course, it depends on the region where you are. For us, we're further south than you. They're a little bit on the very tail end of the bloom cycle. It doesn't start till June. Your traditional Florida dogwood is long over and done with, and even some of the other Chinese dogwood or Kusa dogwood varieties that bloom in May are already played out. But this one, the evergreen one, is really, really late. It's a heavy producer of flowers. It's just a really nice tree, particularly because of the evergreen nature of the leaves.
0: I remember when I was talking to them, they said, yeah, an evergreen dog good and I I said what Yeah, (laughs) A lot of people come by the farm and they tell me, you know, you've got a whole block of
1: trees over there that look like they really need some water. Well, because the leaves droop straight down and they cup, but that's their natural habit. Of course, they'll turn a little bit bronze or maroon in the wintertime and they hang straight down. It always looks like it needs a little bit of water unless you're used to looking at it. I don't pay it any attention anymore. It is unique. That does fit your your description or your category of unique trees.
0: How many trees do you have on your nursery? Let
1: me ask that this way because I know this number. If we had every spot full, and, and we're only 23 acres, so as far as tree farms go, we're pretty small. Based on our production beds and how they're laid out, if we had every spot available with a plant on it, we would have 16,032 trees. I know that number. great cause of the ebb and flow of sales and production and mm-hmm. potting and getting things moved to production beds, at any given time, there's easily anywhere between one to 3,000 empty spaces out there most of the year, really. There are some times when we are really, really full and probably got less than four or 500 empty spaces. To answer your question, we're, we'll stay somewhere around that 14 to 15,000 trees out there. We don't ever have that many available for sale. If we're really smart about this, which we're not always that smart, really smart about, particularly some of the more heavily used crops, we'll have a brand new crop on the ground that just got potted up and moved to the field a few weeks ago, somewhere out there we'll have a crop that's somewhere in the neighborhood of eight months old, 10 months old, not quite ready for sale, but getting close. And we will also have a crop out there that is getting low in numbers that we've been selling out of for four to five months. Try to have a rotation, in other words. So for example, if I've got October glory maples out there, I've got some really small ones in 15 gallons. I've got some medium size was in 15 gallons, and I've got what I call a block of trees or a group of trees that are finished that we're actually pulling orders from. And in a perfect world, pull the last one out of that block and it's all done. That next block is really close, if not already finished and ready to start pulling material out of the ship. What that means is that at any given year, we've got somewhere around 40% of the inventory that's ready and available for sale, 60% that's at some stage of production. And this number, I don't know if this number matches up to my percentages, but we're moving out of there, actually loading on trucks and shipping somewhere in the neighborhood of 7,000, maybe 8,000 trees a year.
0: Wow, it's a lot.
1: Sounds like a lot, but like I said, we're small.
0: <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. I tell you what, I went to your website at diversifiedtrees.com and I saw a couple of videos you had using a drone. Yeah. That was impressive. See that drone fly through the nursery and, and see all what's involved in, in producing. In these trees, and I'd recommend folks go there and, and look at that. I was just very impressed, and I've you know, been around for a long time and seen a lot of nurseries. <laughs> 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 Never flown through any nurseries, but... <laughs> Maybe that's what it was. (laughs) That was the son of a friend
1: of ours who's a student over at Auburn University and does some drone videos on on the side. We originally did video for the trade show season last year since we weren't having trade shows. We were having virtual trade shows. And once all of that was over, I thought, you know, why not? I'm just going to put this up on our website. If I'm buying a 60-gallon plant, what does that mean? We do four sizes. We do a 15-gallon, a 30-gallon, a 65-gallon, and a 100-gallon. To the to the landscape contractor that buys from us, what that sixty five gallon means to him is that he gets pretty good sized plant to start with with a much bigger root system. For us in sixty-five gallon, we we're only doing evergreen material. We're doing conifers and magnolias in those sixty-fives. And so you're looking at getting a green giant arbavada that's ten to twelve foot, Brackens Brown Beauty Magnolia that's ten to twelve foot. That's kind of our target height in a 65 gallon. Take a magnolia for instance. Let's just say Bracken's Brown Beauty magnolia, which is a traditional Southern magnolia grandiflora, dark brown back leaf, very popular in landscape trade. That 15 gallon magnolia is going to be around five to six foot. The 30 gallon magnolia is going to be seven to eight foot. The 65 gallon is going to be nine to ten foot, and the 100 gallon. Magnolia is going to be 12 to 14 foot. Each incremental increase in size of a container, you get that increase in breadth and height of a plant. From a handling standpoint, you go from a 15 gallon that weighs about 45 or 50 pounds to a 100 gallon that weighs about six or 700 pounds, which sounds like a lot. 12 to 14 foot magnolia grown in the field that's field dug and put in ball and burlap probably going to weigh 1,800 to 2,200 pounds. So there's a big difference in weight, big difference to the contractor who's got equipment or got small spaces. A lot of times these guys will say, "I'd rather have a B&B, but I need a container for this one because we got to go." through a small gate. We can't get equipment in there. We got to roll it into the backyard and get it up a hill. And we need something we can have. It's one advantage of container sizes that we
0: do. It seems like building lots, especially residential lots, are getting smaller. How does that determine type plants or trees that you grow? Part of it is, you know, there are a certain number of things
1: you got to provide because they're used in such quantities almost on every landscape. And that's the shade trees and the either the coniferous evergreens or the broadleaf evergreens. Then you get down to some of your specialty crops and you try to think what's going to drive demand. And the smaller urban landscapes are certainly one of those markets out there that you know your customers are dealing with. I've got a lot of residential customers in the Atlanta metro area. They're not dealing with 100-acre condominium developments. They're dealing with the, the old Atlanta neighborhoods that are all postage stamp-sized lots and somebody who renovates a house and wants to renovate their mm-hmm. garden. Their backyard and the pass-through gates, the alleyways are tight, the overhead space is tight, all that kind of stuff. So there are a few trees. We don't have a lot that we offer that fits that niche, but it did kind of drive our decision to add them to the list because we haven't always been growing these. For instance, there's a European hornbeam called Franz Fontaine. It's very fast It's upright, tight, and narrow. At mature size, it doesn't take up a huge headspace. And that tree fits that urban street tree or that urban green space, or that urban front yard. There's a Chinese fringe that we grow, Kyanethus retusus Tokyo Tower. Tour size is only 12 to 14 foot tall and 5 to 6 foot broad. What I would refer to as a patio tree. Fits in a small space, great spring color, okay fall color, nothing bragging about, but the summer foliage colors, dark, glossy green. Mm-hmm. It's just a real nice tree. So there are a few things that we try to add to our mix based on the landscape design needs that are out there.
0: Do you see any other trends coming along in the landscaping and gardening industry? There are a lot of novelty trends when it comes to plants. People stay real close to better
1: homes and gardens or Southern Living magazines, which a lot of the residential homeowners do. And a lot of that drives their decisions toward what plants they ask their landscapers or their landscape architect about. The guys who are bringing new plants to the market that are doing pretty exotic things in terms of hybridizing and tissue culturing and developing plants with certain flower colors, certain characteristics, certain summer traits or winter traits, whatever they're shooting for, there's, a, there's been a big trend toward that in the last 20, 25 years for sure. For a long time, Craig, you know this, landscapes, commercial landscapes particularly, were dwarf yopon, red maple, oak tree, and Laripe. That was kind of your standard commercial landscape. And and admittedly, they were kind of boring. So I think new plant introductions are good, but I'm certainly not trying to grow all of them. That's for sure.
0: What about the native plant movement or just native plants in general? Is that something that you're... Thinking about more now as a grower.
1: We have done certain palette of native plants. It's been part of our production since day one. Part of that is the environment at Callaway Gardens that I kind of came through for a number of years. Mm-hmm. Brought a lot of those plants with us into nursery production when my partner and I left the gardens and started this operation because there's just a lot of great plant material and and native plants have been kind of trendy, you know, for a while. And there's been some encouragement to use native plants because they Adapt better, they survive better, they thrive better. If you use native plants, and to a degree, that's very true. So we've done a number of native trees in our production. We've also eliminated some too, because it can be difficult to grow. Take for example sirewood. It's a great tree. It's kind of that medium-sized woodland tree. They're in bloom right now. If you're paying attention out there, driving around, you know, roadside edges or where it parks or wherever, they're in bloom right now. They got great fall color. There's all kinds of reasons to have them in your landscape. If you like attracting honeybees, native trees are great for pollination and all that kind of thing. There is a lot of really good reasons to have native trees in your landscape. But from the grower standpoint, I could just about ask you to stick an ice pick in my eyeball than to ask me to try to grow another crop of woods. <laughs> I mean, golly, we just, they're so root sensitive and the root environment has to be done and managed so differently that it makes it really, really hard to grow a nice crop of sourwood trees. And then my customers always have problems with transplant success. It seems like nature does a whole lot better job of spreading those through the woods on their own than we can do in the nursery and landscape
0: trade. And that might explain why we don't see, I would say, a huge numbers like we see in exotic plants, nurseries and it, and what do you think that's what drives it? No, that's what drives it. Look, there, there's there been kind of a feudal war between
1: nursery growers over the years. There are some growers who are native purists and some you know love natives and do a small smattering of them. And some who gave up doing natives at all. When you start talking natives, it just depends. Like overcup oak, that's a native southeastern tree. And we have always grown overcup oak. It is easy to grow. It's my favorite of all the oaks to grow and to see it planted and to see it mature. It's just a great tree. There's a native tree that I am committed to growing from now on. Unlike the sirewood, which I've given up on, which I also think is a great tree. I applaud the guys who commit themselves to doing strictly native plant production. They can do it, and they're usually small operations, or they're such big operations that they can tolerate the losses. Mm -hmm. And you think about in Florida, and I won't name names, but there are several big nurseries who do a lot of native trees by seed and do them by the hundreds of thousands because they do a lot of this for reforestation work, for streambait mitigation work or wetland mitigation work and that sort of thing. So there's a niche for marking those trees. But they're also not concerned about growing straight trees or well-balanced trees or trees that necessarily look good for the landscape. My customers, whether it's a landscape architect or a landscape design bill firm, or whether it's just some guy who's just doing small landscape jobs with two or three helpers, they want plants that look good when they put them in the ground. They want straight trunks and central leaders. They want balanced heads. The aesthetics of landscape work is almost what drives what plants you grow, what plants you select for that install, not so much as to whether it's native or exotic or whether or not it's suitable for this climate or not. I mean, we push the envelope a lot with some of these exotics by bringing them into the southeastern landscapes of Georgia and Alabama and Tennessee. Some of them do very, very well. I love plants. I have for a long time. It's one of the reasons I love going to work every day. It's one of the reasons I like this business is that I'm one of the lucky guys, right? I have found something that I really love to do (laughs) because I love plants. Now, having said that, I'm also in the nursery business and I got to pay my bills. I've got to meet production demands. I can't be successful if I have major crop losses. Got to maximize those seven or 8,000 trees that I'm able to ship out per year because that's what keeps the machine running. So I have to make choices. I got to decide how much of a native nursery do I want to be. It wasn't a hard decision, but I was disappointed that I had to drop wood, but I just had mm-hmm. to. The crop losses were just too great. In this business, if you can't make money growing it and selling it, you just can't afford to be trying to grow it.
0: It's got to be economically viable or you're spinning your wheels. Yeah. If
1: I was a hobbyist and I wanted to set up a little small operation, and I'd probably just do some native trees. Because on a small scale, you can alternate your soil mixes. You can play around with shade and sunlight, and you can play around with how much water they get and or don't get, how dry, how moist you keep soils. All of that has to do with the success of being able to grow some of these native species. And whether that's something that's a sandy river bottom plant or an upland hillside plant, I mean, they just all require such different environment. And when you're in nursery production and you're trying to make a living at it, it's labor intensive, but it's just so much less headache. Where if you got a set of plants out there where the, all the watering requirements are very, very similar, all the nutrient requirements are very, very similar, all the staking and pruning requirements are very, very similar. Because I just don't have the labor nor the expertise among that labor to say, treat these three production beds one way. We're going to treat these three a totally different way, and we're going to treat these three production beds even a totally different way from the other. That gets hard to do
0: more Paul Chapel expert insights right after this the gardenquestion.com is an awesome website because we expand each podcast episode with accurate resources and links for gardeners you can also listen to every single episode again as many times as you like think of it as an extension of the podcast at the gardenquestion.com what are some of the biggest challenges you face as a grower Economically, it's always
1: labor for us, right? We always seem to be shorthanded. But from a plant side of things, I think it's being able to do the right things at the right time in the right order is always a challenge because there are so many things that come up that keep you from achieving those goals. Like, for example, I know that if I don't get all of my maples pruned in the springtime before June gets here, if I wait till late June and end of July to try to prune a maple, I'm going to get almost zero response out of it. I'm not going to get another stem break. I'm not going to get another flush because as it heats up, their growth rate slows way down. Well, if I'm busy in April and May, and we're still potting or we're pulling orders, and I got two guys a week that don't show up for work, I'm also trying to do pre-emerge and weed control in the nursery, and those trees don't get pruned at the right time, then that's frustrating. So just staying on a on a production schedule is a big challenge. Staying on top of your weed management is a big challenge in a production nursery, think just making sure that your water is right. I tell the guys all the time, the most important thing we do here is water. Because if we don't do that right, nothing else we do now. Yeah. It requires seven days a week for somebody to be there and put their eyes on what's going on, particularly in the summer months. It's not as critical in the winter months in the dormant season, but particularly kind of April through October. You got to be out there. Even if we're not open for business, even if we don't have anybody working, either me or Corey, my partner, we make sure we go out there. You stick your head in the pump house, you ride, make sure the beds are looking like the water has run and everything's working right. And you take a big sigh and you go back home. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now, i love of it's drip. It's drip irrigation, right?
1: Uh, I guess technically it's, uh, it, they are spray stakes. It's not really drip emitters, but it is a, it is a micro spray system, which is way more efficient than overhead. If we had to do overhead, I'd hate to think about the amount of water it would require. Even with a micro spray system, we are pumping our, our, our pump station is metered. So we are pumping in the neighborhood of five to six million gallons a year to water the farm. Mm-hmm. You know, there's been a push, oh, in the last 10 years. There's been a lot of concern, of course, in the state of Georgia about water quality and water quantity and whether or not agriculture, which is what we're a part of, we're perceived by the general public, I think, as a big water waster. But I'm telling you, all the nursery guys I know are the most water conscious people that I know of. They really pay attention. We try to do it the most efficient way. Any runoff we collect goes back to our water source, filter everything, and we water as efficiently as, as we can. Even during the heat of the summer, we're only running two six-minute cycles a day you know, at the farm.
0: That seems like very little, very short period. It is a short period, but
1: it's adequate to keep them hydrated. It's not so much that there's a lot of runoff and waste, and it's not so little that they suffer. We didn't always do just two cycles. There was a time when we first started, and look, I was new to production nursery operation. I'd been in horticulture a while, but I'd never really done production until we started Diversified Trees. We were running four eight-minute cycles a day years ago when we first started. Now, we asked a lot of other growers, you know, how much water are you running? What are you doing? How do you manage yours? You know, what kind of system do you have? And which is a great thing about the nursery grower industry is that everybody is extremely helpful and very free about sharing information. There's very few proprietary secrets. We have all made mistakes and we've all learned from them. we were having some root rot issues in some of our trees. I had one of the guys from UGA come out, spend a day with us. He's a nursery crop specialist and he basically said, you're running too much water, creating an environment that are giving you all these problems. And so start cutting back on your water. Get ready. When you cut back on your water, the trees are going to wilt because they're used to having all this water. And they're going to start screaming at you like the kid in the grocery cart at the checkout line who wants lollipops and suckers. Mm -hmm. But don't give in to it. They'll wilt. They'll look bad for a few weeks. Then they'll get used to the new regime. We cut back the time and we cut back from four cycles to three cycles. Now, at this point, I've stayed with the six-minute time, reduced it to two cycles, and they really do just fine.
0: I think that's what we tend to do in our own home landscape we run our irrigation systems at home way too much and we overmanage what our landscapes i think
1: we see that a lot on the tree service side of our business because guys are in residential yards all the time they spend the money on a nice landscape and they get an irrigation system put in it's almost like they think well i've got this irrigation system i gotta run
0: it i gotta run it a lot justify my investment yeah 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 and you're right i mean
1: we step into yards that are mushy mm-hmm plants that are dying because they're sitting in saturated soils scum and moss and mold growing in the turf grass
0: because (laughs) it's too wet and uh, i'm sure you've seen a lot of that so we replace more plants that have been over water than underwater stick that shovel on the ground and it makes a sucking sound when you pull back on it yeah yeah, yeah. you know right exactly why that plant died yeah.
1: What people don't realize is the symptoms on a plant, brown leaf margins, all this stuff, wilting leaves, the signs for overwatering mimic the signs for not enough water. But they don't think about too much water. They think about I'm not watering enough. And so they just keep pouring it to it and it just exacerbates the whole problem.
0: Soon's that plant into a death spiral. What is the death spiral? It's a slow fade, and it usually just starts with
1: neglect. I'm going to talk like county agent talking to the homeowner, okay? So this guy says, you know, my, my tree's not looking good. Well, how long does it not look good? I don't know, maybe two years. <laughs> And what you find out is that they know it, but they intuitively don't really do anything about it. They don't really manage their landscape. Now, a lot of people have companies come in, lawn maintenance companies, and they mow the grass and do some pruning, and maybe they get some fertilization, maybe not. Most of them probably don't. But a lot of people that don't have that, people enjoy doing their own gardening. They bought this great tree, and they go out and they plant it, and they know enough to water it when they plant it. If they plant it in the summer, they water it some over the first summer and they get it to live but then you know a few years later it starts looking really bad it starts thinning out they've never fertilized it they've never supplemented the water during dry periods they've never really thought about pest management and whether or not the oak leaf caterpillars have denuded the tree every fall for the last three years in a row it's a sum total of a lot of little things they've been going back the way it was planted we do offer a tree planting service on the tree service side of our business because what will happen a lot of times, we'll go into a, a residential landscape, we'll remove a tree for whatever reason, it lightning struck or it's old and it's fallen apart and they want a tree back in its place. We'll do that, but we're not really full-blown landscape contractors. I've always been a big proponent of good soil preparation in the landscape because that's where 90% or maybe 98% of the problems originate with plants that start. Or plants that don't perform well. For example, if I was going to plant a grouping, let's just say that I really liked limelight hydrangea and I had a nice sunny slope that I was going to plant these hydrangeas on. It was going to take up a space that was 20 foot by 12 foot. What your average guy is going to do is go out there, dig nine holes and plant nine plants. Straw, he's going to mulch them. He's going either bark or pine straw, he's going to water them. And that's the only digging he's going to do. I'm way more prone to actually turn the ground in that whole 200 square foot area. Of course, if I've got the equipment, I'll maybe use a mini excavator. If I don't have that, I at least got a tiller that I can get down 8, 10, 12, 14 inches with and amend the entire area and then lay my plants out and dig those holes and plant them. Particularly in the clay soils of our Piedmont area of Georgia, when you dig a hole pounding through hard clay, so much can happen. One is it can hold water if it's not deep enough. You don't want to plant too deep, but sometimes you got a hard pan, you have to dig through it. Plus, your roots like to go out. Contrary to popular belief, roots don't go down. Roots go out. If I'm planting a root ball that's 14 inches across, I'm going to dig a hole that's at least three times that wide. I'm not going to dig it any deeper than the, the root ball is tall, but I'm going to dig it wide. I'm not going to dig my hole is the same size as a pot and I shove the root ball down in it. I want those roots to have some good, loose, soil to grow out into. That spiral of death a lot of times starts right there without good soil prep. You wouldn't build a house without preparing the foundation, right? And you shouldn't really plant the landscape without preparing the most fundamental piece of that, and that is Thorough, really good soil prep. You know, just make sure you got good organic matter. Make sure you got good soils to work with. Make sure you do soil tests, know where your pH is so that you can address deficiencies and all that sort of stuff. You can pay somebody a lot of money, put in a really nice landscape. If the soil is not right, you're going to be really, really disappointed. You might not be disappointed that first year. But you're going to be disappointed down the road. What do you wish people
0: would do differently when they design or build or grow a garden or landscape?
1: Not overplanting and not overdesigning.
0: I see so many
1: landscapes, residential and commercial, that are just so way overplanted. I know in my mind that in five to 10 years, half or more of those plants in that landscape are going to have to come out or should come out because it's going to be so crowded. I'm not a professional designer, and I don't mean to be bad-mouthing designers because I know that they're also trying to meet a customer expectation. If we could educate the end consumer about being patient with gardens and allowing landscapes and gardens to mature and designing and installing not for what it looks like today but for what it will look like in 10, 15, and 20 years. I'm hurting my business because I'm going to sell fewer plants if we start doing that. (laughs) The other thing, windrows of Leyland cypress planted six feet apart. You and I both know not only bad plant choice, whether it's Cryptomeria or Green Giants or Magnolias, and you plant something six feet apart that's going to be 40 foot tall and 18 foot broad at maturity. Yeah, it looks cute today and it accomplishes what you want right now. You'd be so much better off to give it proper spacing, to try to see in your mind what it's going to look like down the road.
0: That would be my wish. I'm a guilty party on that Leland Cypress thing. Planned them back before we knew that we need to be spacing them. That's my summer project. I've got probably a 100 of them. i got to yeah. take down on my property. Yeah. I'm not looking forward to it. <laughs> well, you can't get replacements from me because we quit growing them about five, six years ago. <laughs> I am not replacing with that. We've excommunicated Leland Cypress from our itinerary.
1: Everybody wants to screen their neighbor. Mm -hmm. Let's face it, plant material gets used a lot for the same purpose that fence does. Another trend, I guess, the the green wall I wish would go away, and I wish people would do more of a aesthetically pleasing kind of buffer. I mean, mix it up some, you know, create some depth. But with small urban landscapes, I get sometimes eight feet of width is all you've got to work with along your property lines. So you got to do something. So I get it. It's not a perfect world for those things.
0: You mentioned Callaway Gardens earlier. Tell us about Callaway Gardens. It's hard to believe it's been 20 years since I
1: worked there. I still drive by it every day. Still a very special place for me. It was probably the best horticulture experience that I ever got. I learned. First little greenhouse landscape mom and pop place I worked for back in the 80s. Did the big Atlanta landscape maintenance design build company back in the late 80s and early 90s. Then came to Callaway Gardens in 94. I was there eight years. Callaway, in the strictest sense, it's not necessarily a botanical a garden like the Morton Arboreum or like the Atlanta Botanical Gardens would be. It does have collections, but it's more of a resort gardens than it is a true botanical garden. We had an educational component. We had educational staff at that time back in the 90s. We did a lot of interpretive work. Every piece of the landscape, I won't say every plant, but in the more heavily trafficked sections of the garden, we had interpretive labels, botanical names, place of origin, that sort of thing. And certainly in, in the really highly intense landscapes like the Sibley Conservatories and the outdoor perennial gardens, yeah, every plant was labeled people could come and not only enjoy the look, the feel, of being in a space like that and being in a garden like that, the sounds, and the colors, uh, the waterfalls, the koi ponds. the It's still a great place. You know, miles of bike trails. There's lakes with fishing. There's recreational opportunities with tennis and golf and racquetball. There's restaurants. There's the lodge and spa hotels, places to stay. There's the Robin Lake Beach, which is, I think, may still be the largest man-made beach, at least in the southeast, I think it's almost a mile long. That's a 53-acre lake now with a beach most of the way around it's pretty substantial. The Masters Water Ski Tournament is there every year over Memorial Day weekend. It's really a unique kind of environment. A lot of things have changed. It's not the same place it was, but it's still a great place to go and to visit and to see a, a pretty outstanding garden spaces. As far as professional development, I don't have the academic background that a lot of guys in this business have. I, I didn't go through horticulture program in college. I have been a voracious reader, Michael Durr and, and Alan Armitage forwards and backwards as much as I can, I try to memorize the glossaries in their books so I wouldn't sound silly. When I was in conversations that required it, the time when I came to Callaway Gardens, there was a vice president of horticulture, Dr. Barrick, a PhD in horticulture. He taught at University of Florida for a number of years before he came. Callaway Gardens. Just a brilliant guy, a landscape architect, I think, by training, true gardener by experience. In fact, when he left the gardens in the late 90s, he spent his last 20 years as the director of Bellingrath Gardens down in Mobile, which is another just incredible garden space. There were also two directors, a director of grounds and a director of horticulture Both who were professionally trained horticulturalists, then a number of managers, Hank Bruno, who was the trails manager and the manager of the azalea gardens, masters in botany. So I'm I'm talking smart people that I got to rub shoulders with. That forced me to go after whatever other professional credentials I could get. Everything from as simple as a pesticide license to the Georgia certified landscape professional certification to certified arborist to whatever else i could dig into as i made it up into management at callaway gardens it was just part of that environment probably the most formative eight years that i could have ever asked for anywhere to prepare me and bring me along for what i'm doing now tell us a backstage secret at callaway I think a lot of the guests take some of the floral displays for granted, and they're not as numerous as they used to be. But whether it was just an in-ground summer floral display or whether it was a seasonal display, like in the fall with the mums at the Sibley Center most people would be really surprised to realize how much work went on behind the scenes to make those displays come to life. I was responsible at that time for a lot of floral plantings around the gardens, and I had to design those plantings a year in advance so that I could turn in to production everything that I needed to make those displays happen. They, of course, had to place their orders for seeds and plugs and all All that stuff had to be brought in. Then it had to be grown in the greenhouses and ready on those displays. We weren't putting flats in. We were putting in more mature perennials and annuals that already showed color because we wanted it to be instant. We didn't want to to let it grow into it. The mum displays, particularly the cascading mums that were in the Sibley Center over the waterfalls and over the railings, that took several months to grow those mums and to train them and to pinch them and to tie them to the frames and bring them out. And people think, oh, this is just wonderful. It took a lot of man hours to put some of that stuff
0: together. I would think it'd be extremely challenging just to transport the cascading mums from the greenhouse without breaking them. Oh, it was.
1: It was. They were set out on on a certain area of the pad. They had certain frames that they were grown on, and then they had to all be handled by hand just a few at the time to move them into place. And so it took a lot of hours to do that. Tell us something humorous about being in the tree business. One thing that happens occasionally that I find pretty humorous is more on the tree service side of our business. There have been a number of occasions over the last 20 years where we have gone in for a client to remove a tree. Sometimes they want us to put one back in its place and we've planted a tree for them from our farm. We've gone back on a number of occasions to fertilize that tree with soil injection equipment. We have pruned that tree to lift it and keep it in good shape and 10, 12 years later, they decided to add a deck or change the house or move the swimming pool and we have gone back in and we have taken that tree down and planted another tree 30 feet over it's like it's like we made our living on that tree like five six times it's just too funny what is your
0: earliest garden memory
1: Oh, golly, that's real easy. Hoeing corn and tomatoes in a vegetable garden with my dad. So I've always been in the dirt in that regard. Horticulturally, my earliest memories are of my mom, who was prone to keep a plastic bag and a pair of snips in her pocket, but with her at all times. And she would still cuttings off a plant. She'd see something she'd like, and she'd just park the car on the side of the road in some neighborhood. Mom, what are you doing? I've always wanted one of those. And she'd look over both shoulders and take a snip put it in her plastic bag and bring it home. I know for a fact that we have at the old home place, there is a burning bush in our yard, which is probably suffering because it's so hot down here. But we were up in Tennessee and she saw these burning bushes at a gas station on the side of Interstate 81. John, pull over. We pulled in there and she went in the bathroom, got a paper towel and wet it, got a cutting wrapped it in a paper towel, stuck it in a purse and brought it home. And she always rooted her stuff in a glass jars with water in the kitchen window seal. And if it rooted fine, if it didn't, she wasn't very scientific about it. There is more stuff in the old home place yard as a result of her stealing <laughs> cuttings from all over the Southeast, uh, and, you know, getting them <laughs> to root and then planting them. Talk about a woman who's patient. She didn't need instant effect. She just would put this little bitty stick in the ground and threaten me beyond no end not to run over it with a lawnmower until it got (laughs) up to size.
0: What got you into horticulture and arboriculture as a profession?
1: I was living in Cartersville, Georgia at the time, and I had been working for a carpet mill there. It was a job that I hated for five months. I was inside and I had no windows, and I just loathed all five months of it. I saw an ad in the paper for Greenbrier Nursery looking for workers, called them up. Mr. Ralph Fair gave me my first job in the nursery business. He encouraged me to get my pesticide license, which I did, been in it ever since. That was probably 1983 or 4, I think. I just fell in love with it. First plants I ever potted were Jackson Perkin roses. Came in from Texas to our little greenhouse. I didn't know beans about what I was doing. We potted up rose bushes for retail sale, and I just thought it was the coolest thing in the world. Did a little bit of landscape maintenance and a little bit of landscape install around Cartersville, Georgia. I just felt like I had a knack for it. And once I started working in Atlanta, that was with AAA Lawn Industries years ago. We were doing commercial properties. I really love pruning. I don't know, it was crazy. A lot of people hate pruning, but I I love taking something out of bounds and turning it into something back inbounds. It just kind of got in my blood. By the time I made it to Callaway Gardens, it's hard not to love it in that setting. And then my business partner, he was the managing arborist at Calloway. We started talking. Callaway was changing some. We could see some writing on the wall. Dr. Barrick had left. Parker Andes had left. The winds were blowing a little bit different direction. We weren't too sure where horticulture was headed at the gardens. And if you want to stay in botanical gardens work, which... I probably could have gone to Mobile, but I was tired of moving. I had moved a good bit. We had kids and it's just not a botanical garden around every corner, right? So you have to be willing to be an itinerant preacher and, and go, and go from state to state. If you're going to stay in that business, we got just got to talking. Well, what if we, what if we do a nursery and we do tree work? plants is what we know. It wasn't until after we started Diversified Trees, really, that I went and got my ISA certification because I I still want to be a student. You got to do 30 hours of education every three years to maintain that certification. So we are continually still trying to stay on top of things. I love trees. I'm not a tree hugger in in that truest sense. You don't sit down in front of the bulldozer to save a tree. We are going to do all we can to help promote tree health care promote the benefit of trees. I've been fortunate enough to do a number of small garden club talks, continuing ed talks at the library where they have people sign up that want to come listen to a talk about trees. I enjoy promoting that because I think they do play. Available part. It's not, it's not just a catchy phrase to say that trees bring value to the landscape. They really do in and, and a lot of different ways.
0: What's your most valuable garden
1: mistake? Planting something in a wrong place and after moving it probably a dozen times at my own house, finally finding somewhere that it was happy. <laughs> And by that, I mean, if you plant something in the wrong place and it dies, don't go buy another one just like it and plant it back in the same place. Learn from that mistake. If you see that it's not doing well, catch it before it dies. Dig it up and move it. Plants are pretty resilient. Just learning to move stuff around and not being discouraged because something dies, put something else in that place. I think there's value in in killing a plant because if you think about what you did and what the plant was and where it was, the environment it was in, you uh, You'll do better next time. In your professional career, who's been your biggest influencer? I would harken back to the Callaway days and all that staff there. It's impossible to pick one particular person. That environment was just an incredible influence for me. Other more recent years, meaning the last 20 years, I think the people in this industry, again, I'm not going to single out any individual, but the other growers have been a huge encouragement. When we decided to start Diversified Trees, I knew a lot of these growers from my days at Calway because I, I bought a lot of plants. I'd been to a lot of these nurseries and tag trees that we brought into the gardens and used there. We, as we were preparing to leave the garden and start Diversified Trees, told some of those guys about those plans. You would think you might come across somebody who would say, oh, we don't need another grower. You're going to take away part of my business. What do you think you're doing? But it didn't go that way. I was really encouraged. Last six months at Callaway Gardens, I spent every weekend, every free time that I could get away and got on the road and went to a lot of these other growers. They shared a lot of invaluable information, and I saw a lot of things that I wanted to imitate. I saw a lot of things I didn't want to imitate, too. And and so, you know, all that was good. Those guys have been a huge influence on our success by
0: their willingness to share information and help us do a good job. I would like for you to complete this statement. In my garden, I have a mess. <laughs> it's like the plumber's
1: kitchen sink always leaks, right? My own garden, it's got some neat things in it. I've got some plants that I'm pretty proud of. Nothing Terribly exotic. I do look forward to kind of fixing a lot of it one day when I retire and then maybe you can spend a lot more time doing some of the things I really like to do with plants and seeing it grow and change. I have a Muskogee crepe myrtle and I know everybody's just going, woohoo, oh boy, crepe myrtle. I bought it as a three gallon and I planted it and I've got a front porch and a side porch, our kitchen porch, we call it, and they kind of form a corner. Everybody always asks me, why didn't you just tie the two porches together? And I don't know the answer to that, but I did. So I've got this space in that corner where I planted a Muskogee crape myrtle. It's no more, I promise you, it's no more than three feet from the foundation in both directions, 90 degrees from each other, from both foundations of those porches. And you think that is in totally insane. But I had a vision of what I wanted, and I wanted That crape myrtle to get up and over the top of the house and provide a canopy for those porches in that corner. I've been in this house almost 23 years now. It took me probably 18 of those 23 years to train it into three large trunks. And they are massive trunks. Each one of those trunks is probably 10, 12 inches in diameter. And to get it to go between the root spaces and arch out, that Muscogee crape myrtle is every bit of 35 feet tall. And it arches out over those porches on that corner of the house. I'm not worried about the foundation tree planting that because if it was an oak, I would, mm-hmm. but not a crepe myrtle. One of my plants that I'm pretty proud of, it's kind of a focal point for me. Still flowers real good. And most everybody that comes, not that I have a lot of visitors, they go, wow, is that a crepe myrtle? I don't think I've ever seen one that big. And there's certainly crepe myrtles that big all over the place. They just don't look for them. Back to the old adage about how people prune their crepe myrtles and they lop them off at shoulder high every year, and that kind of thing. I knew that with good pruning and over time, what it could look like and what it could become. And it's finally there. You
0: let it meet its potential or you let it to its potential there, it sounds like. Yeah. Yep. sounds like you got some of your mom's patience, too. Yeah, probably so, because there's a
1: lot of things. Like I underplanted that crepe myrtle in that corner with cast iron plant. And of course, in the early years, it got sun scorched. And I didn't plant, but maybe, I don't know, 20 little quart gallons of ap- apodistra, right? Cast iron plant in there. And of course now it's got enough shade and it's been there long enough that it is thick as hair on a dog's back. And it's just got this nice lush green kind of upward and dipping broadleaf. It's look that crepe myrtle looks like it's floating out of that cast iron plant in that corner of the house. And it's, it's my favorite corner and I won't ever, t- I may, I may rip everything else around. <laughs> out totally out and redo it one day, but I'm not changing that corner.
0: Set it up on a stage. You had the stage of the Aspidistra iron cast Iron Plant and then the crape Myrtle coming out, the star of the show. Well
1: I'll tell you what really made me want to do that. There are a number of plantings at Hillsendale's estate in LaGrange. That's the old Callaway home place. And it's a public garden with a visitor center and Obviously, Miss Virginia Hand Callaway was an avid gardener, so the Callaway family was always gardens on both sides, You know, the LaGrange crowd and the group down here that started Callaway Gardens. But she made excessive use of cast iron plant and used it around the base of a lot of the large mature trees, and I just thought it was absolutely fascinating. It just appealed to me personally. Somebody else may look at it and go, they don't care for it, but I really liked it, and I tried to emulate that here.
0: Tell us about Diversified Trees and how people may connect with you. We're not
1: just a grower. We also have the commercial residential tree service side of the business. The tree service side of the business is very connected to the general public. The nursery side of the business, the growing operation, is wholesale only to the trade. It's always been a little bit of a dilemma for us when it comes to marketing and exposure because on the one side, we're, we advertise in trade journals and in trade formats. On the other side, we're in the yellow pages. We're on the internet. We're trying to get ourselves out there to the general public in our local area. We've been doing this for 20 years now. This is our 20th year. We are a grower of container trees, no field-grown material. It's all larger container trees, 15-gallon up to 100-gallon. The tree service side of our business, we've got some long-term clients and in terms of some of the local colleges and universities and golf courses and commercial property. And we've got a lot of residential clients, some who do repeat. Most of them are, are one or two times over the course of a number of years. We're fairly small, too. If we're at full steam, we only have about 10 employees, five on the nursery side and five on the tree service side. And all these years, we haven't really expanded our numbers that way. It doesn't mean we haven't expanded the business. We have been able to you know, do that over time. It's a little bit more than mom and I have a business partner, and we're 50-50 owners in the business. It's very comfortable for both of us. It's been a real good adventure for us over the last 20 years. We do have a Facebook page, Diversified Trees. Everything we have, even our website, diversifiedtrees.com. The main contact phone number is real simple. It's a local number, 706 is the area code,
0: 663 Paul Chapel, thank you for sharing your successful growing journey with us today. You are tree in episode 14, where trees come from, on the Garden Question podcast. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time.